Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Lewis Martin of Round River Management in Colorado. I was intrigued by their business model after reading about them and how they're operating a land and livestock management company by running custom cattle on leased land. And so I asked him to come on and have a conversation with him about it, and he generously accepted. So thanks so much, Lewis, and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, so I I know you mentioned you've listened to a couple, but so you probably know as I like to to start these off with is, is kind of going into your history a little bit and getting a little context as to how you got to where you are and as far as your, you know, in ranching and your experience and, and then how you got to the actual, you know, ranch that you're on today. Sure. Well, it all started back uh, when I was, uh, I guess, in junior high with a 4-H project. Uh, agriculture skipped a generation in my family. My father was an engineer. My mother was a school teacher. And we lived in Fort Worth, Texas. My mother's parents and her brothers farmed and ranched near Brownwood, Texas, and uh, always enjoyed spending my summers there with working with them and uh, all that kind of thing. And so as I got involved with 4-H, we started showing uh, registered polled Hereford cattle, developed a small herd there. And then when I got into or got ready to go to college, I decided that I wanted to be involved in ranch management thinking I'd probably never actually own my own ranch, but I wanted to uh, be the best manager that I could. So I went to school at Texas A&M. I uh, majored in animal science, and it wasn't very long into my college career that I recognized that it takes a whole lot more than an animal science degree to be an effective manager. So throughout my uh, college education, I Took a lot of courses outside of my degree plan in business, finance, accounting, range science, agronomy, ag economics, anything I thought that would benefit me to be a better manager. And then while I was at A&M, I uh, took a job as a student worker working at the Beef Cattle Center at A&M. And then shortly after I graduated, the opportunity to uh, the management position came open and I applied for that. And uh, was hired to be the manager for the uh, Texas A&M Beef Cattle Center. And we managed uh, their beef herds. We had three purebred registered herd, a Hereford herd, an Angus herd, a Brahmin herd, and then a herd of commercial cattle that were used for teaching, research, and extension work. So from there, as manager of the Beef Cattle Center, I was there for 18 years, and I worked on my uh, master's following kind of the same protocol that I did as an undergraduate, uh, taking a lot of courses outside my degree plan. And then uh, also had a lot of good mentors that I had the opportunity to work with while I was there at A&M. And it was in uh, the mid 80s, about 1983, 1984, that I first learned of Alan Savory and Stan Parsons' holistic management. And so I uh, became a student of holistic management during my career there and while I was uh, working on my uh, master's degree. Uh, in 1998, I decided to uh, 
leave the university system. I'd been there for, like I said, 18 years. We had some changes in administration and recognized I probably wasn't going to advance any farther there, so I decided to leave. I stayed there in Texas for about two to three years, uh, doing a little bit of consulting and trying to build a business there in uh, Texas. Uh, But then in 2001, I uh, decided I needed to do something else. So uh, I started looking uh, seriously for a ranch management job, and I had two opportunities. One was in uh, Louisiana, and the other one was out in Utah. We've decided to take the job out in Utah, managing a large public lands ranch, over 450,000 acres. And uh, so we moved to moved to Utah there, and uh, I began managing that. Of course, that was in 2001, 2002, 2002 being like the driest year on record up to that point. I'm not sure we may have exceeded it since then, but uh, Hmm. so we were doing real well there in Utah, but things changed, and uh, I I was actually fired from that position, but uh, I wouldn't do things any different after a lot of reflection. That ranch was known for a lot of problems. Uh, they'd had six managers in the eight years that they'd owned that ranch, and I was the, there the second longest of anybody. So, uh, but that's a whole other story and podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, so it really was. I, I landed on my feet, and I was fortunate to find a job with a family that had been involved in ranching for a long time, and they were involved in holistic management over here in Colorado, uh, the Fraser family. And so our family moved to uh, Colorado, and uh, we began managing uh, one of their ranches, and we were there for uh, five years. And the opportunity to uh, lease the Brett Gray Ranch, which is our first ranch that we've leased, came open. And uh, I visited with uh, the Fraser family and uh, see if they were interested in leasing it. And they weren't initially at that time, but uh, I told them I was interested in doing something. So I submitted a proposal to them. And then we uh, decided to move forward and we worked. This was a state land board property. The Nature Conservancy was involved with it. And so we had a request for proposals and uh, we submitted a proposal and were selected as the lessee to uh, lease and manage the Brett Gray Ranch, which is about a 49,000 acre ranch. It's a very unique ranch in that it has a live stream running through the property, runs year round. It's got a lot of seeps and springs on the property. It's just a very unique property that the one reason the Nature Conservancy was interested in it. So we formed the business Round River Resource Management with the idea that it would be a land and livestock management company. And this was you and the Fraser family? Uh, yes. And uh, we uh, started out and we own three legs. First, we were going to work to restore and regenerate properties through uh, holistic management and regenerative agriculture, through planned grazing and that sort of thing. We would stock the ranch, graze, custom graze cattle. We would uh, manage livestock for, provide professional management to livestock owners. And then the third leg of the uh, stool was to offer intern and apprenticeships to uh, young people to provide a pathway into agriculture. Coming from a non-ag background, per se, or having skipped a generation, I understood how difficult it was for uh, young people to 
get into agriculture without a large capital investment and that sort of thing. So since 2008, we have managed and run the Brett Gray Ranch and the Lime BX Ranch solely with interns and apprentices. Wow. Uh, that's kind of how we got started. Yeah, oh, that's an incredible story. And I definitely want to get more into the ranches that you're running today, but I'm curious, kind of going back to the beginning. I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but it's somewhat uncommon to so early on have the intentionality you did with deciding you were going to be a ranch manager and being intentional about learning business and management skills. You you kind of went down the route of, at first, it sounds like of what a lot of people I feel like do is the animal science, but you maybe recognized early on that there's a difference between knowing how to take care of cows and, and run a business that takes care of cows. And uh, could you talk on that a little bit, maybe about why that was important to you and maybe some of the things you learned early on in those management classes that you think were important for your, your career as a ranch manager? Sure. Well, uh, you know, starting out as we got involved with 4-H, my parents actually uh, made my brother and I go to the banker and we got a loan from our community bank to purchase our first flock of sheep that we first started with. And so as a 10-year-old, I started learning about banking and, uh, you know, managing my uh, books at that time. And then as I got into high school, and we, of course, we had a small herd of cattle, you know, I was keeping the records for that. I had a good mentor that I worked for in the summers, uh, John Merrill, who was the director of uh, TCU Ranch Management Program there at TCU. So I worked for him in the summer and learned a lot about it those things then. And then as I got into uh, college, I had some other good mentors, Jim McGran, uh, who's an ag economist, Frank Litterst, who uh, was the beef management specialist, and just a number of other mentors that made me realize the importance of just doing more than just being able to manage cattle or livestock. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, tried to reach out and learn as much as I could from all different areas and aspects of the business. Well, that's, yeah, I'd say that's uncommon a lot of times. So that's really neat that you, you had those mentors and that you recognized it as early as you did. And and when you ended up working for the, I think you said TCU Ranch Program or something, the, the university there, or maybe Texas A&M, but um, what was that program as far as what were the kind of enterprises that you were running? Sound like a couple of registered herds. And then how did that maybe contrast to, or did it, I kind of want to contrast the the management skills you had and the, the management philosophies that you had before and after attending the holistic management now and getting familiar with Alan Savory's holistic management principles, you know, kind of what was the differences in the early days versus maybe when you started getting exposed to some of those concepts? Sure, sure. Yeah. Like I said, at the Texas A&M Beef Cattle Center, we had three purebred herds that had been there for number of years. Then we had commercial herd. And so I got to work with those different management type practices that you might see in a mm -hmm. seed stock production herd as opposed to commercial herd. You know, my experiences in some of my classes like uh, soil science, it was pretty much all chemical based. We didn't talk about soil health like we do now. And then, uh, you know, in rangeland management, the uh, grazing herds our grazing systems were much different. You talked about a three herd, four pasture marrow grazing system as opposed to the managed rotational grazing system that holistic management 
promotes using uh, recovery periods and stock density to help improve pastures. So there are a lot of different contrasts, and that's what made sense to me. Some of my experiences on our small farm that we had when raising our herd, the holistic management practices that were promoted just made sense to me. And I can remember sitting in a range science class working on my master's at that time and discussing holistic management. And professors were very skeptical that you could improve and regenerate your pasture lands through the uh, intensive grazing practices promoted through holistic management. But they made sense to me. And so I became a student then and started trying to follow it and slowly started uh, changing my management practices and saw a lot of results through that. I continued to try to refine my skills over the years. Do you think the university started to see some of those things and maybe change their perspective on how to manage a ranch and grasslands? Yes, I think you've over time that they have started to recognize uh, the value of some of those practices. And uh, you're seeing more and more people both within the university and extension systems as well as actual practitioners and ranchers out in the field are starting to adapt more and more of those practices. No, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and that you were just willing to think differently and expose yourself to different ideas. And then when you had that opportunity to look at two different ranch management positions between Utah and Louisiana, I'm curious what the thought process on that is. Cause I, I'm not sure exactly what your experience was in Texas. There's some a little higher moisture and some more drier, but Utah and Louisiana are almost polar opposites probably as far as rainfall and kind of productivity of grasslands. And I mean, those were, I mean, yeah, just talk about that. That, that had to be an interesting discussion in your mind. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a severe contrast. One ranch was near Lake Charles. It was basically a rice farm that ran cattle as well. It was a large uh, ranch operation. I think they had over 5,000 cows on the ranch operations. But uh, I was just attracted to the West, the arid climate, the ruggedness and the size. Uh, You know, I could drive a 200-mile round-trip circle on the ranch, never cross my path, and never get off the ranch out there. (laughs) Wow. That's wild. Yeah. No, I mean, in, here, I'm in Southeast Minnesota where like the amount of, co- I, I talked with a guy in New Mexico and he was running uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of acres running the same cows we are here almost on, uh, you know, 600 acres. And so, I mean, it's a very different, totally different landscape and not to mention the, uh, you know, the additional benefit or disadvantage of Louisiana of that humidity and heat, I'm sure would have been pretty, <laughs> pretty miserable. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. That's fascinating. That's so cool. uh, Shortly after I accepted the job in Utah, there was a big hurricane hit right there in that area uh, of Louisiana and just reaffirmed my (laughs) decision to go west. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When you were talking earlier about how just when you got there, you got hit by the worst drought. I was like, man, I bet you're probably regretting that decision already. But no, when you talk about a hurricane, drought sound probably pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, that's, that's cool. So then kind of getting back to where you're at today, the place you're at today, uh, when you, you were looking at this piece of land, the, the, the opportunity to start leasing this ground from the nature conservancy, what kind of business models were you considering? You know, were you considering owning cows, custom grazing stockers? Yeah. I mean, you know, owning 
stockers? You know, what were the different enterprises you considered and how did you come to the conclusion of what you're doing now? Well, uh, number one, this area, again, is subject to drought and you need the flexibility of grazing and, uh, to, in order to sustain and regenerate the property. So we knew that we wanted to uh, have that flexibility. And so uh, probably about a half of our cattle or stockers or yearlings that, you know, we bring in in the summertime during uh, when we have extra grass and growth and that sort of thing. And we also have the flexibility of sending them to a feed yard or something like that. If turn it turns into a drought situation and we're forced to destock, and the other was to have a uh, stabilizing cow herd on the ranch that, you know, you could graze during the winter, generate income over the off seasons and uh, have a baseline income, a revenue stream. So those were the two of the main things that we looked at. There is some irrigated property on the ranch uh, that we use. The infrastructure on that is pretty old and We've struggled to use it effectively, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for uh, some grass finishing on some of that use with high quality uh, forages and stuff. And we're starting to look at that now and planting some cover crops and uh, looking at uh, doing some grass finishing on those enterprises. But in the process, I've also been building my own herd of cattle uh, over the years uh, that we've been here as well as uh, providing opportunities for interns and apprentices. Uh, one of my current apprentices that's been with me, uh, he's going in his third year right now, has purchased his own herd of cattle and is building his own herd of cattle for giving him an opportunity to build equity and uh, have his own herd as well. And so that's one of the flexibilities that we have with our model as a management company. We can try to identify properties to lease and manage for the landowners uh, and regenerate their properties, give our interns and apprentices opportunities to develop skills and manage these properties, as well as building their own uh, herd of livestock and even stack enterprises. I think there's a lot of opportunities that here or some other ranches that we at least now or perhaps in the future, that sheep, goats, uh, direct marketing, uh, pasture-raised uh, livestock, uh, meats and stuff, uh, just a whole lot of opportunities and flexibilities with our business model. Yeah. And something I've always wondered when I hear people who kind of have that, uh, the drought protection thing, like like you mentioned, that ability to vary stocking rate, that sounds really great but i'm curious with like maintaining relationships with livestock owners does that become an issue if you say yeah we'll take them i mean how do you maintain a relationship with somebody that has really no guarantee that you'll be able to take the livestock all summer or maybe you know winter you, know, you won't get the snowfall you need to so you're just going to say we won't take any next year i mean how does how do they plan around the variability of weather? I mean, it's easy, I guess, maybe on your side to be able to say, we'll, we'll just take less, take more, but they need to plan accordingly as well. I'm curious how you manage that. Well, that's part of the beauty of holistic management and the grazing, uh, planned grazing that you have. You can predict pretty well, you know, based on the rainfall, how much regrowth you've had and how much forage you have in front of you. 
you can generally predict and plan in advance. So you can give generally give the uh, livestock owners, you know, advance notice that say, hey, these things are happening. We need to make plans. And if they're yearlings, you know, do we send them to a feed yard or what? Uh, or maybe we cull harder in our herd, you know, get rid of a lot of our older short mouth cows or pl just plan in advance. And it gives you a lot of flexibility. And that's one of the beauties of holistic management, that decision-making process, not just the grazing uh, aspect of it, but the decision-making process. No, that makes sense. And, and I'm not sure with your environment, but I've heard some places out West, is it true that a lot of the year you're actually grazing stockpiled grass? You're very rarely grazing green and growing grass. And so you kind of have, a, like you're saying, a little bit more of an idea and an inventory well months, if not, you know, a full year in advance of what your forage supply is. Uh, yeah, that that is true. And I mean, this year is a perfect example of that for us here. You know, we had a really dry year last year and we were kind of with all the long range forecasts, they were forecasting a severe drought this year. And so we had already planned and to reduce our numbers from what we would typically graze in a normal season. But then like the 1st of May, all of a sudden we started getting rain in May and June that totally unexpected. And we just had this huge flush of growth. And so we were able to find uh, some yearl additional yearlings that we were able to take on to uh, utilize that forage. Uh, we picked up 400 head of yearlings and about 135 pairs that came out of Oregon, drought-stricken Oregon, that we uh, carried through a portion of the summer and uh, then sent them to the feed yard and the cows we just recently sold in a bred cow sale. So it, it gives us a lot of flexibility. And so if we uh, have more forage than we need, we can kind of plan for that and look for uh, opportunities or livestock owners that may need some additional grass, or if we look at the forecast and uh, what our forage availability is, we can start reducing numbers in advance before we get into uh, trouble. No, that, that's interesting and just so like different than I guess, and maybe I'm looking at it wrong on how we manage here and stuff, but where we could get, I guess this past year was an example of it. I mean, we, we, typically get a lot of growth in the spring, a lot of moisture. And this year we had a pretty dry spring and grass was still growing somewhat, but it kind of shut off there for a few months where it just wouldn't grow. And then in August, we had a bunch of rain and end up with a ton of forage. And it's, we, we don't really have anything stockpiled. Anything that gets ahead of us tends to go rank in this high moisture environment, lose forage quality and, and go downhill pretty quickly. So we're not necessarily grazing stockpiled forage and have a bunch ahead of us. We've got few weeks ahead of us and we plan on the regrowth to get to the next you know for the next rotation and that ability to do a little more long-range planning based on just because you are grazing a lot of stockpiled forage it's it's intriguing it's interesting and i wonder if there's ways i often wonder if there's ways to better and i'm sure there are better calculate what we've got ahead of us and plan for those i need that's something we need to learn on our, our in our environment <laughs> here in minnesota Sure. I've never uh, worked or ranched up in that area. I mean, I've been in some humid areas in Texas where can grow, get a lot of grass growth and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think there are a lot of opportunities there. And I, I think, you know, there are probably some opportunities up in uh, your climate with stockpiled forage and pos or possibly, you know, 
the bale grazing or just windrow grazing mm -hmm. in the wintertime before mm -hmm. you get too much snow and uh, extending your grazing season. You'll probably never be able to totally avoid uh, hay or anything in your climate, but uh, you might ask yourself, well, should I do seasonal grazing and not try to run cows on a year-round basis? So. Yeah, no, and that's a conversation we're having more and more often, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it can be a challenge to convince yourself that when you're, you know, historically a cow-calf guy, but yeah, it, it's, you're absolutely right. But I want to, I'm curious on your actual landscape, like you talked about in, in Utah and in Colorado is, you know, 50,000 acres, but in Utah, you said you could drive, I think 200 miles with never going over the same track and leaving the ranch. What are the logistics of actually managing that kind of a landscape and managing these numbers of animals six to, you know, I, I don't remember how many hundreds, I think I saw on the website, six to 900 cows and a few thousand yearlings. I mean, what's your labor pool that you're, you're able to manage this in and what is daily actual logistics of managing this kind of a landscape in those numbers look like? Well, uh, that's another advantage of, of the planned holistic grazing process and stuff. You've got your herds combined to larger herd. You don't have as many herds, so it doesn't take as much effort to get around and check your livestock. But, uh, you know, we can run more cattle here on this 50,000 acre ranch here than I could on that 450,000 acres out in Utah. So, uh, you know, it's just the difference. But uh, here right now, currently this year, we have managed two ranches, the Brett Gray Ranch and the Lime BX Ranch, totaling between the two of them about 75,000 acres, over 3,000 head of cattle with two apprentices and myself. Ideally, I would like to have had a couple of more apprentices uh, working for us this year, but uh, with COVID and some of the other challenges, it, we didn't have it. But uh, with our grazing systems and uh, large combined herds and stuff, it's pretty easy for us to uh, manage it with a limited labor pool. And how do you think that, I mean, is that a pretty big piece of your ability to be profitable, I imagine? is I, I think it was either Dallas Mount or Dave Pratt I heard on a podcast once talk about the difference between the United States and Australia in full-time equivalents per, or cows or you know animal units per full-time equivalent. And I think the United States average is I got to listen back, you know, 200, 300, somewhere, you know, quite low. And in Australia, it was like 1800 animal units per full-time equivalent. <clears throat> I mean, do you think that's a big part of your ability to be a profitable business model is that essentially 3000 cows or animals, you said to three people? Definitely. You know, we're able to spread our overhead costs across, uh, more acres and more animal units. And so, uh, you know, not only our labor as far as taking care of the livestock with the uh, larger herds, but also the equipment that we own, we can spread the cost of that over more acres. You know, where most farms and ranch, everybody's got a tractor, everybody's got a truck and all these things. We can reduce the cost, our overhead cost by spreading that equipment over uh, more property. And uh, therefore, we actually uh, run cattle for other livestock owners, probably cheaper than they can run it, them, uh, run the cattle themselves, give them an economic opportunity by us managing the cattle for them. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the perfect situation. If you can be profitable 
and save someone else money. It's a win-win for everybody. It's not like you're taking, you know, from another person to generate profit on your ranch. You're you're developing a, a you know ideal win-win system. Right. I'm curious, what are the other overheads that you need in your environment on your ranch to manage a cow herd through the winter or through the years? I mean, do you have haying equipment, feeding equipment, uh, trucks and trailers, and you know, or what what is the equipment line that you're required to maintain? We've got one tractor, one skid steer. About two years ago, I bought an excavator, a little mini excavator to uh, work on pipelines and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I've got one 24-foot stock trailer and one 36-foot flatbed trailer to haul equipment with. And that's just about the extent of our equipment. And then some ATVs for checking and herding cattle. Wow. No, that sounds pretty incredible. It's awesome. Is that is that? Would you say that's common in your region, or most, uh, or is are most people still utilizing heavy equipment use for their their livestock production systems? I think it varies. I think people are becoming more conscious of their overhead costs, but uh, yeah, it, that's a key factor for profitability. I mean, it doesn't take your land and your labor cost, and that includes equipment, are your two biggest expenses. Uh, your direct cost, your feed costs for your cows and that kind of thing are pretty minimal, really. And so uh, being able to manage those overhead costs is a key to profitability for just about anyone. Yeah. So moving to kind of this apprenticeship program, that goal of your your initial business plan of helping young people get into the business. I mean, talk about that. What was the decision to to have your labor source be a primarily apprentices and interns versus hiring on full time staff or, you know, seasonal just average you know seasonal laborers or, or what was the decision for that? And well, I think it goes back to my background recognizing how difficult it is for young people to get into agriculture, and then the because of capital investment you almost either have to be born into it or take a career somewhere else and then come back later and buy into it. But here in agriculture, I think we've done a disservice to ourselves in that for generations, last two to three generations, we've discouraged our young people from going into agriculture. And we're at a tipping point now where most farmers and ranchers, average age is what, around 62 or something like that. And they're retiring and selling their land. And we don't have anybody with are very few people with the experience and knowledge it takes to profitably manage these lands and livestock, particularly in a regenerative manner, you know. Uh, And so that's been important to me to give people an opportunity that may never have had the chance to go into agriculture otherwise. And so that's just kind of one of my own personal values or things, trying to give people a break or a chance to get into agriculture. Yeah. And how are you working to kind of engage them in the management, a little more educational experience versus just labor? Or how are you teaching Uh, these apprentices as they work through your system? Yes. uh, I mean, currently we work with the Kavira Coalition and their new agrarian program. But the way we've kind of structured our model, and it's still in development and growth, but uh, we go through what we call an eight-month internship that's kind of with the Quivira Coalition. And then for those that 
want to stay on and we feel learning and want to actually get into agriculture, we have like a two-year apprenticeship program where they take on more responsibility, uh, do more supervision, make more day-to-day decisions. And then uh, as they go through that two-year process, we kind of go into uh, the journeyman type program, which I envision that as kind of being a three-year program where you take on more management skills. Uh, you start building your own enterprises, uh, which is something back in kind of in the apprenticeship area. You start thinking about enterprises or business models that you might want to uh, grow into or develop. Uh, then the journeyman is kind of where they take on more management skills. We perhaps try to find more branches to manage and operate and give them more of the day-to-day management. Then also the ones that go through the apprenticeship, I usually send them all to the Ranching for Profit School. I've had one, two, three, Hmm. four, five different apprentices that have uh, gone through Ranching for Profit to learn some of those practices and skills. And I'm just curious on that specific decision because the Ranching for Profit School is uh, a school that we've almost, we've been putting off ourselves. We're finally planning to go here in, in February area. Yeah. In early February uh, this winter. And we've been putting it off my dad and myself, even though we're here on the place and will be here forever, the investment of time and money is pretty steep. And so for that reason, we've been nervous and you're investing in sending these students who won't even be on your place for a long time to the ranching for profit school. That's, that's a very generous investment into these, uh, these, these apprentices and these interns. I mean, you, you're just willing, you're just, you feel it's important enough to have them go. Uh, yes, I do. I mean, if they're serious, you know, I did not go through the ranching for profit, even though I've been involved with a student holistic management since the mid eighties, I did not go through a ranching for profit until 2013. And then I joined the executive link. It's just a great networking opportunity with people that like-minded people. And so I think if somebody is serious about going into agriculture, I think it's a very important thing to, and way to learn. Uh, it's a very intensive program lasting for a full week. It leaves you kind of almost brain dead at the end of the uh, <laughs> week. You're but, giving uh, me an insight into what I uh, I will be experiencing here in February. <laughs> they cover a lot of important aspects, particularly the people management or people aspect communication, because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's a weak link I think on a lot of farms and uh, farm families and uh, between uh, management and employees is that communication aspect, and they work delve into that pretty deeply into that importance and so it's just another way of giving these people an opportunity to learn you know and the apprentices and interns i mean they're not paid full wages and so this is another added value of their learning experience you know maybe they can't afford on their own but uh, i i have had a couple of people that left or quit on me shortly after i made that investment so uh we do make clear and uh there, we have one thing that we do here. We have an employee equipment incentive bonus that accrues on a monthly basis that if you take care of the equipment and are not negligent, mm-hmm. 
that's a bonus that you accrue over the period of time. If they should decide to leave before, if they take like the ranching for profit and decide to leave, well, then they forfeit that bonus. Uh, so I can at least recover some of my investment by not paying the incentive bonus. Huh. That's a, that's neat. Uh, have you found that you, you need that to have people responsibly manage equipment or did you just, I mean, is that a, is that, that come out of bad experiences in the past? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, one of those things people are always leaving or losing equipment or not taking care of it. And so this is just a little added thing that I get some money and I don't know if they really recognize the value of that until at the end, if they have screwed up a time or two or uh, been negligent, messed up some equipment on a negligent basis, and they lose two or three hundred dollars off of it because of that. So, and then it starts to have an impact. Huh. Oh, that's that. That's an interesting concept I haven't heard of. Uh, one that. I wonder. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I kind of like it because I know over the years I've made mistakes that have costed my dad some money and it's a little bit easier knowing I'm just working for the farm and it's going to be covered. But if there's that incentive and you see it come out of your, your, your theoretical future paycheck or something, then then that is a little more incentive to be careful. I like that. I like that. So back to that, the ranching for profit school, though, and the, this whole apprenticeship program, clearly education and, and investing in these these uh, individuals is important to you and have you seen some of them go on to you know to pursue careers in this same manner and find success in doing it after leaving your place yes uh we have i mean not all of them some of them decide it's not for them but yes i've had at least i think i've had six interns and apprentices that have gone on and graduated from vet school. And I think most of them are practicing large animal veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. I've had one that's left here, went to through the King Ranch graduate level ranch management program. He's managing a large ranch in Texas. I've had another uh, mm-hmm. young man that was with me for, I believe he was with four years. And uh, he's now managing a large holistically managed ranch over in Kansas. So, you know, I've probably had over 60 interns and apprentices that have gone through our program in the last 12 years. And I'd say we've probably 30% of that are for sure are still involved in agriculture or management agriculture or veterinary medicine and that sort of thing. I'm curious your perspective of going through your career and managing ranches for the person out there who thinks the only way to get into ranching is to buy, you know, like they need to buy, build equity and land and cattle and do it that way. I mean, what would you say to that individual who thinks that's kind of the only way to get involved in in managing or, you know, actively involved in ranching? Well, I I think it's uh, land values are so high right now that it's, almost impossible to pay for land strictly with production agriculture. You've either got to find a way to add a lot of value to that with value-added deal or whatnot, or find outside income or something to help pay for the land. And I think we're at another tipping point. As I mentioned, a lot of the farmers and ranchers today are Start, are reaching retirement age and are selling a lot of properties. And a lot of the people that are buying those properties have limited skills and knowledge. And I think that they're 
are opportunities for young people to develop relationships and lease some of these properties and manage them in a regenerative way that benefits the landowner and the uh, manager or the young agrarian that's trying to uh, get into agriculture. Do you have recommendations for how people get connected with those landowners and take, you know, find the resource, the land resources that are out there and develop sort of a, a relationship and a contract to, to manage that land? Well, it's probably, I mean, there are different ways. I mean, I've, the state land board has properties available for lease, but uh, it's developing relationships. And then, you know, with our program, I've been able to develop some of these relationships. So as people come in through our program, they can help find a pathway into it and lease properties and stuff. And so having a good mentor is, I think, a key for a lot of young people to try to uh, break into it or knowing somebody that's got some property and developing a relationship with them. So I think, I mean, I in the 10, 12 years we've been here, I have seen and know of opportunities to lease probably over 400,000 acres in the last 10 or 12 years. Some of them we've tried to lease, some of them we haven't, some of them we've been overbid on, but uh, I think developing relationships is a key key factor. Well, I'm curious if there's anything that I haven't asked you or something that you think would be important for the listeners on anything we've talked about, anything you've done or something we haven't even talked about. Hmm. We talked about quite a bit, so I don't know. Not not anything that I can think of right offhand. Uh, but if you think of something, sure. we can certainly do another podcast or whatever. That would be that would be great. I appreciate that. Well, then I do have two questions, two final last questions, and the first one is resources. You've mentioned a couple: ranching for profit, holistic management. Um, but if there was a, an additional one or two resources that you would recommend to somebody, that can be anything from a book to a conference convention or what would be one or two recommendations you would recommend to somebody trying to do what you're doing sure and i knew you'd probably ask that question right i think uh, a lot of the, my suggestions have already been mentioned uh, i really suggest reading the holistic management book i mean i've got all three editions and i think i've read read them at least three to four times uh, and periodically go back and reread it again as a reminder. The Quivera Coalition has a really good network. Uh, the NAP New Agrarian Program is real good for young agrarians. Maybe talk a little more about Quivera. I'm not actually familiar, too familiar with that organization. Well, it's an organization based out of Albuquerque or Santa Fe, New Mexico, but it was founded a number of years ago and, uh, they talk about trying to bring people to the radical center, people from the ranching community, from the environmental community and all that, and try to find common ground and work on that common ground to advance regenerative agriculture. You know, they've got their new agrarian program that has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, I'm not sure how many different farms and ranches are involved with that now as mentors. So it's a great opportunity for young people to get their foot in the door into agriculture and start building some of those relationships. So I think looking at the Quivira Coalition, their new agrarian program, is a very important thing. And I cut you off to talk a little more about that. Were there any other ones you wanted to mention? Uh, 
I think Holistic Management International has some good programs as well. And then uh, books by Alan Nation, a lot of those are very good books. There's a number of those, or Joel Salatin has some really good books. Uh, So there's a lot of information out there, and I don't know of any specific thing that I could recommend right now that hasn't already been mentioned. No, that's great. Um, If somebody wants to reach out or wants to learn more about what you're doing, is there social media, website, something that they should look towards to, to find more information? I'm not a big social media fan. Anybody that wants to reach me can reach out to me via email or even a phone call. Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at roundriver.biz or my phone number, which you can put in show notes if you'd like, would probably be the two best places to reach me. Okay. No, that, that sounds great. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I think what you guys are doing there is fantastic. It blows my mind when I hear you talk about three people managing you know, that kind of a scale of, of land and livestock and the diversity of ownership and leasing. It's really, really fascinating. And so I appreciate you coming on and sharing that today with our listeners. Really, really thank you. Very welcome. I enjoyed it. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.